Welcome to Songs of Praise from 3ABN Australia Radio. Dreams of 
I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, his child and Blessed Redeemer, I think of him all day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. His love is the theme of my shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night redeemed, redeemed redeemed by the blood of the Lamb redeemed redeemed his child and forever Thank you. 
This is Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. Faithful will. 
frustration and despair We are sinking with a world that doesn't seem to care We try to find contentment but we cannot disguise this hollow Sadness in our eyes. For when the flame of our ambition dies away among the ashes remaining, whatever we leave behind, there is no peace we find for where. Hope when the final light is fading away. Can we live our lives ignoring this hollow Can we go on when the road seems to run in vain? Must be more than the cycle of emptiness. Is there no hope that can truly give us peace and rest? For in the flame of our ambition oh, dies away. We find for where is hope when the final light is fading away. And there's a light that always will stay. The sun is rising, the day is new, a child is stirring in heaven's view.
Listening to Songs of Praise.
Listening to 3ABN Australia Radio's Songs of Praise. 
Jesus, take me, I would give my heart to Thee. Thy devoted servant, make me only Thine to been listening to Songs of Praise, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, Saying and Doing. Jesus pointed out to them their sinful disregard of their father's authority, in refusing to do the work appointed them. He made no compromise with sin, and many were turned from their unrighteousness. Had the profession of the Jewish leaders been genuine, 
they would have received John's testimony and accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But they did not show the fruits of repentance and righteousness. The very ones whom they despised were pressing into the kingdom of God before them. In the parable, the son who said, I go, sir, represented himself as faithful and obedient. But time proved that his profession was not real. He had no true love for his father. So the Pharisees prided themselves on their holiness, but when tested, it was found wanting. When it was for their interest to do so, they made the requirements of the law very exacting. But when obedience was required from themselves, by cunning sophistries they reasoned away the force of God's precepts. Of them Christ declared, Do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. Matthew 23, verse 3. They had no true love for God or man. God called them to be co-workers with him in blessing the world. But while in profession they accepted the call, in action they refused obedience. They trusted to self and prided themselves on their goodness. But they set the commands of God at defiance. They refused to do the work which God had appointed them. And because of their transgression, the Lord was about to divorce himself from the disobedient nation. Self-righteousness is not true righteousness, and those who cling to it will be left to take the consequences of holding a fatal deception. Many today claim to obey the commandments of God, but they have not the love of God in their hearts to flow forth to others. Christ calls them to unite with him in his work for the saving of the world, but they content themselves with saying, I go, sir. They do not go. They do not cooperate with those who are doing God's service. They are idlers. Like the unfaithful son, they make false promises to God. In taking upon themselves the solemn covenant of the church, they have pledged themselves to receive and obey the word of God, to give themselves to God's service, but they do not do this. In profession, they claim to be the sons of God, but in life and character, they deny the relationship. They do not surrender the will to God. They are living a lie. The promise of obedience they appear to fulfill when this involves no sacrifice. But when self-denial and self-sacrifice are required, when they see the cross to be lifted, they draw back. Thus the conviction of duty wears away, and known transgression of God's commandments becomes habit. The ear may hear God's word, but the spiritual perceptive powers have departed. The heart is hardened, the conscience seared. Do not think that because you do not manifest decided hostility to Christ, you are doing him service. We thus deceive our own souls. By withholding that which God has given us to use in his service, be it time or means, or any other of his entrusted gifts, we work against him. Satan uses the listless, sleepy indolence of professed Christians to strengthen his forces and win souls to his side. Many who think that though they are doing no actual work for Christ, they are yet on his side, are enabling the enemy to preoccupy ground and gain advantages. By their failure to be diligent workers for the Master, by leaving duties undone and words unspoken, they have allowed Satan to gain control of souls who might have been one for Christ. We can never be saved in indolence and inactivity. 
There is no such thing as a truly converted person living a helpless, useless life. It is not possible for us to drift into heaven. No sluggard can enter there. If we do not strive to gain an entrance into the kingdom, if we do not seek earnestly to learn what constitutes its laws, we are not fitted for a part in it. Those who refuse to cooperate with God on earth would not cooperate with Him in heaven. It would not be safe to take them to heaven. There is more hope for publicans and sinners than for those who know the word of God but refuse to obey it. He who sees himself a sinner with no cloak for his sin, who knows that he is corrupting soul, body and spirit before God, becomes alarmed lest he be eternally separated from the kingdom of heaven. He realizes his diseased condition and seeks healing from the great physician who has said, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6 verse 37 These souls the Lord can use as workers in his vineyard. The son who for a time refused obedience to his father's command was not condemned by Christ, and neither was he commended. The class who act the part of the first son in refusing obedience deserve no credit for holding this position. Their frankness is not to be regarded as a virtue. Sanctified by truth and holiness, it would make men bold witnesses for Christ. But used as it is by the sinner, it is insulting and defiant and approaches to blasphemy. The fact that a man is not a hypocrite does not make him any the less really a sinner. When the appeals of the Holy Spirit come to the heart, our only safety lies in responding to them without delay. When the call comes, go work today in my vineyard, do not refuse the invitation. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 4 verse 7. It is unsafe to delay obedience. You may never hear the invitation again. And let none flatter themselves that sins cherished for a time can easily be given up by and by. This is not so. Every sin cherished weakens the character and strengthens habit. And physical, mental and moral depravity is the result. You may repent of the wrong you have done and set your feet in right paths, but the mould of your mind and your familiarity with evil will make it difficult for you to distinguish between right and wrong. Through the wrong habits formed, Satan will assail you again and again. In the command, Go work today in my vineyard, the test of sincerity is brought to every soul. Will there be deeds as well as words? Will the one called put to use all the knowledge he has, working faithfully, disinterestedly, for the owner of the vineyard? The Apostle Peter instructs us as to the plan on which we must work. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, he says, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. 
Second Peter chapter one verses two to seven. If you cultivate faithfully the vineyard of your soul, God is making you a labourer together with Himself, and you will have a work to do not only for yourself but for others. In representing the church as the vineyard, Christ does not teach that we are to restrict our sympathies and labours to our own numbers. The Lord's vineyard is to be enlarged. In all parts of the earth, He desires it to be extended. As we receive the instruction and grace of God, we should impart to others a knowledge of how to care for the precious plants. Thus, we may extend the vineyard of the Lord. God is watching for evidence of our faith, love, and patience. He looks to see if we are using every spiritual advantage to become skillful workers in His vineyard on earth. That we may enter the paradise of God, that Eden home from which Adam and Eve were excluded by transgression. God stands toward His people in the relation of a father, and He has a father's claim to our faithful service. Consider the life of Christ, standing at the head of humanity, serving His Father. He is an example of what every son should and may be. The obedience that Christ rendered. God requires from human beings today. He served His Father with love, in willingness and freedom. I delight to do Thy will, O my God. He declared, "Yea, Thy law is within my heart." Psalm forty, verse eight. Christ counted no sacrifice too great, no toil too hard, in order to accomplish the work which He came to do. At the age of twelve, He said, "Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business?" Luke chapter two verse forty nine. He had heard the call and had taken up the work. My meat, he said, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. John four verse thirty four. Thus we are to serve God. He only serves who acts up to the highest standard of obedience. All who would be sons and daughters of God must prove themselves co-workers with God and Christ and the heavenly angels. This is the test for every soul. Of those who faithfully serve Him, the Lord says, "They shall be mine in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him." Malachi chapter three verse seventeen. God's great object in the working out of His providences is to try men, to give them opportunity to develop character. Thus he proves whether they are obedient or disobedient to his commands. Good works do not purchase the love of God, but they reveal that we possess that love. If we surrender the will to God, we shall not work in order to earn God's love. His love, as a free gift, will be received into the soul, and from love to Him, we shall delight to obey His commandments. There are only two classes in the world today. And only two classes will be recognised in the judgment: those who violate God's law, and those who obey it. Christ gives the test by which to prove our loyalty or disloyalty. If ye love me, he says, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. 
If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. St. Andrews today is famous for two things. Number one, it's the home of golf. And number two, it's the town where Prince William met Kate whilst he was studying at university. But it's the spiritual history of this town that is most interesting and significant. St. Andrews was the town in the 1500s where the first Protestant Scottish martyr was burned for his faith. His name was Patrick Hamilton, and he is remembered by a spot with his initials on the ground. But we fast forward to the year 1538, when Cardinal David Beaton took over and made it his mission to catch a reformer by the name of George Wishart and stamp out what he saw as the growing heresy in Scotland. At the time, George was only a young man, 25 years old, and he stayed one step ahead of the Cardinal and escaped and went to Cambridge University, where he met with Hugh Latimer, and together they went on to Bristol. He was only there for about six months when he got into trouble again and had to flee the city. He went to Switzerland where he spent three years traveling to various cities, including Geneva and Zurich, and he had the chance to meet with John Calvin and Bullinger where he was able to study and crystallize his views on the gospel. In 1542, he returned to the British Isles and went to Cambridge, where he taught at the university. 
After teaching for one year, he then returned to Scotland where he began to preach the gospel in cities around the country. He went to Montrose to teach the Book of Roman, and then he went to Dundee. Beaton followed him there, but Wishart hid from him. Then he went to Perth to preach, and then to Ayr. The Archbishop followed him, but he could not catch him. He then went back to Dundee, and a priest by the name of John Whiten was sent to kill him, but the crowd turned against him. George Wishart was much loved by his countrymen, as he didn't just preach, but had a very practical side to his ministry. In one instance in the city of Dundee, when the plague broke out, most people fled the city, but George Wishart went into the city so he could care for the sick and the suffering. Towards the end of his life, he met John Knox, who was a young man at the time and would go on to be a great leader in his own right in the Scottish Reformation. He started out essentially as a bodyguard for George Wishart, carrying a two-handed sword with him as he traveled around the country. They built a strong bond as teacher and student until finally Cardinal Beaton, with 500 soldiers, captured George Wishart. John Knox wanted to follow George into captivity, but was told to stay with the words, one, is sufficient for sacrifice. He was brought here to the castle and put here in this sea tower where he was imprisoned. He was then tried and as he was tried, he answered all his accusations from the Bible. They were not satisfied and he was condemned to death. Outside the castle walls, the initials GW are imprinted on the ground, marking the exact spot where George Wishart gave his life at the young age of 33. Two things we learn from this man. Number one, in his ministry and life, he was incredibly faithful and was ministering to the sick and suffering as he traveled around the country. Number two, we learn about the power and importance of preaching. How in two years, as he traveled around the country, he caused great revival, making a lasting change and impression here in this country. The thing that stands out to me the most though is how young he was, that he died at the age of 33. He was a teacher at Cambridge at the age of 29. He gave his youth to God and God used him in a powerful way. God is calling for young people again today. Young people who will give their talents and their gifts to him and allow themselves to be used in a powerful way. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com.